think most of you know, I'll ask if you could please stand with me as we worship together this morning.
grace point. Good morning, yes, please. I always welcome that in the context of worship. Just want to remind you, I do this often, but you're here, so be here. Don't think about lunch. I know I am, but not like actively, just my stomach's grumbling a little bit, so that's a very obvious response. <laughs> but just be here. If you need to put your phone in silent, do not disturb. If you need to turn it off, God's got something for you in these moments as we sing together. Don't miss it. Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from. Oh, he is my song. Sing it with me. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the anthem for my life. Oh, he is my song. We sing, you are good, you're good.
this week and if you're on the couch at home absolutely no discredit to your situation COVID is still alive and well unfortunately but it's been heavy on my heart this week that we make space and time for community we cannot do any of our life alone and we're not meant to we're meant to thrive in community as I study cognitive science at UCST, it's been kind of fun to understand the brain in a different way as it relates to spirituality. But there are actual studies that show that you need connection to thrive. It's not just something they say is like a fill statement out of a proverb. It is actually, it's been shown. We can't do this alone. Not to get dark, but your life spans shorter when you try to do it alone. You're meant to thrive together as one in this space. We don't meet just because we have to, we get to, we get to sing praises together. And when God says that when two or more are gathered, there I am, there's a reason. There's a reason that there are three strings and an unbroken cord. You are not meant to walk this life alone. So find a leader after this, somebody wearing a name tag. If you're not involved more heavily or deeply in, in a group, please meet some people get connected do not walk alone you're not meant for it we have a good God and he loves you too much to let you walk alone amen pardon me <laughs> it's always fun when I leave my capo on it makes life more real I'm married <laughs> This is one of our favorite songs here, I think, just by default. So let's sing this out together as one big voice. Oh, my words fall short. I've got love and new. How could I express? Take their songs as I often do. Every song must and you never do. You know it. So I throw my hands and praise you again and again. Cause all that I have is a
if you feel comfortable, lift those hands with my arms stretched wide. you to leave your carnal idols at the foot of the cross because our God is worthy of the praise and the adoration that he deserves. Let's sing together, family. Come on, my soul, don't you get shy of me. Lift up your song. You got a lion inside of those arms. Get up and praise the Lord. Sleep is awakening. that we can't stay the same because you care and because you love. 
I pray that we learn to submit to your will. We get to do this. We are given the freedom and the will and the opportunity to sit at your feet. And I pray we take that moment for its best. We love and praise and adore you, Father. And it's in your name we pray. And the church said, amen. Amen. Oh, good stuff. Have a seat, everybody. You're going to do that anyway. Might as well say it, you know. Uh, good morning. Uh, welcome again to Grace Point Church. Um, I love how God weaves the fabric of these services together as all the pieces are planned over and prayed over. And again, I can't think of a better song to set up where I know we want and where we will go this morning as we study God's word. There really is something about raising your hands. And again, what we never want you to do is feel manipulated here. Matter of fact, you're going to see this morning in Jerusalem... Inside a temple, people felt manipulated, and Jesus hated that. And we're going to get there in just a little bit. But you know, if it resembles a heart that is humble and a life that is surrendered, a life that feels fragile but available to God, that's a powerful thing. And so uh, I encourage you. Most likely, because of what I know where we're going to be doing this morning, you're going to struggle a little bit if you're like me. What are you going to do with your struggle as we look at God's word and as we wrestle with what he said back then and how he wants to apply it today? What are you going to do with your struggle? I want to surrender my struggle to him, and I hope, I hope you do as well. So let's go. So Mark chapter 11. If you're in this series, if you've been around our church, we've been in the gospel of Mark for a long time. Your Bible probably just kind of opens up to it. And so uh, we have been walking through Jesus's public ministry that started when he was 30 uh, for many, many months. Uh, Matter of fact, Mark chapter 1 through Mark chapter 10 uh, covers three and a half years of Jesus's ministry. Mark chapter 1, Jesus is 30. Uh, Mark chapter 10, he's moving into about 33 and a half, somewhere around there. So now, uh, after all of that summary, things slow down. So now the last six chapters, Mark 11 through 16, primarily focuses in on one week. It's called the Passion Week. It begins on a Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter Sunday, and it is a packed Week. And this is Mark's uh, last lap to make his case for Christ. And make no mistake, a case should prompt a choice. And that's the idea. He doesn't want you to walk away thinking, well, that was interesting. He really wants you to literally buy in responsibly or back away responsibly after you take a look at the case for Christ. Is he more than a man? Or is he one that God said would come? So that's kind of where we've been. And so we're going to just pick it up after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he was met outside of the Golden Gate or the East Gate, coming down the slope of the Mount of Olives, going through the Kidron Valley and going up into Jerusalem. Um, People saw him coming. They have anticipated this for years 
And now it's happening, and he uh, is, is, is fulfilling some prophecy with the donkey. We talked about that last Sunday. And so now people are not even going to wait till he gets in the temple because they want to go in with him because this is the time the Romans are finally going to lose the grip that they have had on the people of Israel their entire lives. And so they meet Jesus outside of the gate. Hosanna, save now. We're with you. Blessed is the coming kingdom. Blessed are you, the coming king. And so they are amped up. We talked about this, though, is that this celebration slash coronation had some expectation to it. We're going to worship you. We're going to follow you as long as you are the Messiah we want you to be. And we want you to get rid of the Romans. We're tired of paying their taxes. We're tired of their rulers being our rulers. We want to go ahead and govern ourselves. We want to be free again. So if you're going to be the king like David was, we are in. If you're not, most likely uh, we're out. And so that's, that's where they were. And so Jesus, and this is kind of where we stopped, and it's huge to remember where we stopped because it's huge where we're going Jesus goes into the city. He goes into the temple. You remember what he does? It's late. He looks around. That's huge. He sees what's going on. And then he leaves. It surprised the disciples. It surprised the city of people that were worshiping. Let's do this. Save, not tomorrow. (laughs) Save now. Let's do this. We're with you. He looks around and he leaves. He goes back about the two-mile journey from Jerusalem up the Mount of Olives. Uh, Bethany is on the southeastern lower slope of the Mount of Olives. And that's where he stays the night. Now we're picking the story up on Monday morning. So this is day two. And we're going to take a look at day two and the beginning of day uh, three this, this, this morning. And so Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. So on the following day, this is Monday, this is after Palm Sunday, this is after he came and looked around and left. On the following day when he came from Bethany, again about two mile journey, doesn't take that long, maybe uh, 45 minutes at the most. When they came from Bethany, he was hungry. (laughs) And as he's walking on this well-worn path, Bethany to Bethphage, down the slope, Kidron Valley. He looks over to his right or left, and he sees this fig tree. And he sees that there are leaves, mature leaves, on this fig tree. And he's hungry. If you've read this before and you have wondered, uh, why is Jesus so grumpy? (laughs) You're in good company. So let's unpack this a little bit. And so, and seeing in the distance from the path, a fig tree, if you have your Bible, in leaf, that's huge. Why on earth is that a big deal? Well, again, the fig tree is presenting something that it wasn't able to deliver. And so in leaf, this is a mature leaf. There's probably some mature figs because that's how this works. You know, in the context of here, this is in April and the fig uh, trees and the fig leaves, they don't mature till about June. And so what happens with fig trees back then and today, uh, first you have a little bit of uh, fig uh, uh, growth, 
a little bit of blossoms that turn into mature figs eventually. You have fig growth. And then after the figs start popping up a little bit, then you have leaves popping up a little bit. Then they grow together. And then finally, when the leaves are fully matured, the figs are ready to be picked. And that's the plan. And so one of two things is true. Because this is not the season. It's not June yet. And that's kind of where, where figs are and, uh, and fully mature. And so one of two things happen. Either this was... Uh, 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 a tree that still had the mature leaves, thus the mature figs uh, from the previous season, or maybe just got a little bit juiced up, a little bit more, a lot more sun, and maybe, uh, maybe it was just ahead of the game for the next harvest. Somehow, these leaves were getting Jesus' attention, and he was drawn to it because the, where there's mature leaves, there should be mature figs. Hold that thought. And so... Uh, in seeing the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Now, again, the inference there is he thought there would be more than leaves. He thought there would be free, uh, figs, but there was nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. So the disciples didn't think much about it. But he said to the fig tree, have you ever talked to a tree? <laughs> My guess is, the disciples haven't heard Jesus talk to a tree either. And uh, they're probably thinking, you know what? Uh, we should have had breakfast. You're grumpy. You're hungry. We get that. But notice this. And he talks to a tree. May no one ever eat figs, fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Did they say anything about it? No, I wouldn't either. I was like, oh, we're just going to let that one go. You know, maybe, you know what? Let's go ahead and keep going here. I love how the fact that when Jesus says and does something they don't fully understand, they keep following. Don't, don't miss that. You know, there are some things when Jesus says or does or doesn't say or doesn't do here. I'm tempted. You know what? Maybe I should find another Messiah. A lot of people have back then. A lot of people do today. But they keep following. I love that. So they heard it. They didn't understand it. They thought, okay, let's keep going. And they do. So let's keep going here. And uh, so, uh, well, let, let's, let's stop there just, just, just for a second. Let me give you a little context here. Context because we might miss something that, that, that's huge. Because this sets up something else that's a little bit strange, a little bit superlative, a little bit exaggerative, a little bit later on in the story. So this seems a little over the top. Can we agree with that? This seems a bit harsh. You're, you're, you're picking on a little tree that has some leaves but no figs, and you're judging it for what it is not able to deliver. A couple things here. What happens in context? Every time you have a passage like this and you wonder, what's that about? You got to stop and remember. Never take a verse out of context. Put it and keep it in context. So then the first things to ask is, what just happened? And or what is about to happen? Because Jesus never does something out of context. He always speaks. He's always teaching and training. He doesn't do anything accidentally. And so this is part of an amazing story that we're going to piece together this morning. So again, let's take a look at what happened before, and then I'm going to share with you what happened after, and then we're going to try to make more sense of what this is all about. So again, the day before, again, I've already hinted at this. Remember, he goes into the temple, and what does he do? He looks around. What does he see? We're going to find out. Really, what he sees is corruption. 
is religious robbery and people who are trying to do what they believe God wants them to do and try to draw near to God and, and bring their imperfection to God because God said that's what he wanted. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. The religious people took advantage of that, ripped them off. So he sees some of that and then he leaves. What comes after this? So soon after uh, he judges the fig tree, he goes into the temple and he judges another fig tree. It's fairly helpful to understand that in passages in Hosea and in Jeremiah, mostly, but there are a few others, that the nation of Israel is called a fig tree. And literally, uh, he judges a physical fig tree, but then he judges a figurative fig tree. So it's never about the poor little fig tree on the path. It's pronouncing judgment because it's waving its leaves and says, come and eat my figs. Come, I have something for you. And then when you come, there's nothing that should be. It's just leaves, nothing but leaves. And now Jesus is going to go into the temple. And again, the people of God, the Jewish nation, God created in Genesis 12. And then God basically protected and cared for for generations. But hear me, God called the nation of Israel to be more than just waving leaves, have figs, have have an accurate representation, be my ambassadors to a broken world because I want them to see my character through how you live with me. And so again, it really starts turning on some uh, insight when we understand that he's going to pronounce judgment on a tree, on a path, because he knows, based on what he looked around and saw the day before, he's going to go ahead and judge a figurative fig tree. I'm going to give you just two verses. There could be many more this morning, but let's go way back uh, to about 2000 BC, before Christ, where this fig tree was first created. This is the beginning of the Jewish nation. Before God got a hold of Abram and Sarah, there was no Jewish nation. They were Chaldeans. I mean, honestly, they were way over in modern-day Iraq. And so God says, I'm going to go ahead and tag you. I'm going to invite you, and if you walk with me, you trust me, I'll make you into a great nation of which all families, out of your family, all families will be blessed. Look at Genesis 12, 2 and 3. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing after I bless you. That's why I'm calling you. That's why I'm blessing you. It's not for you. It's for you to go ahead and be a blessing to others. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's Jesus. Jesus is going to be this Jewish Messiah that's going to basically die for the sins of all mankind. That's 2000 BC. And then 700 BC, just fast forward a little bit. Look at Isaiah 49, 6. Remember the calling I created, I called. I want you to be faithful to this calling. What is it? I will make you, O nation of Israel, as a light for the nations. So that when they see you and they see how I relate to you, it would be kind of an aroma that would be attractive. And they say, I want in on this. I will make you as a light for the nations that my freedom, my salvation may reach way beyond you, but to the end of the earth. 
So again, as a fig tree, I'm going to create, care, call, and you then will be my ambassadors, my, my representers of who I am to draw the world to me. Sadly, the Jewish people over and over and over again wandered away from being close to God and their calling from God. They kind of started making it all about themselves. Typically, you and I kind of do the same thing. God blesses me because I guess he likes me. It's because I'm special with him. No, listen, God blesses you. He does love you, but he wants you to be a blessing. And the loudest story in scripture is God knew that a perfect lamb one day will be needed and he's creating something brand new, a new nation to go ahead and ultimately bring this perfect lamb to us. So that's a little bit of context. Present context is what he is going to do based on what he saw the day before. And, uh, but the larger context is it's the nation of Israel that God is about to bring judgment upon based on how they have wandered from their calling. So let me give you something else related to this. So you have Mark chapter 11, that's where we are. And so Luke chapter 19 is a parallel passage. And I like Dr. Luke because he's the only of the four that really goes in chronological order. And so he basically puts all this detail together in order. He's the only one that does that. Everyone, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John are more topical. And they kind of, they, 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 they put this together. Okay, this is the theme and this is the theme. But Luke, in his chronology, he adds more detail. He doesn't leave anything out. And so, uh, and Mark leaves this out, but... We're thankful for Luke because this helps us understand what's in the gospel of Mark. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 19, verse 41. This happened on a Monday morning, the same Monday morning that we are studying in Mark 11. So, and when he drew near after Palm Sunday, this is Monday morning, after the fig tree judgment, and he drew near and he saw the city, what city? He's looking at it from the east, and he sees Jerusalem. He knows what's going on in there. He knows what the people were called to be, a light for the nations. And when he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it. Why was he weeping? But it's because they, they, they lost their calling. They're, they're making their life all about them. And Jesus is weeping because of their wandering hearts. Let's go even more for this. Look at, he weeps over Jerusalem. Then now look at verse 42. And no longer is he just weeping. Now he's going to pronounce judgment. And not just pronounce judgment, but he's going to foretell prophetic judgment that Jesus knows is coming that will take them all by surprise. They thought, God will never judge me because I'm, I'm circumcised. I'm, 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 I'm his chosen people. And however we live, it's going to be good with God. They were wrong then, and we are wrong now, if that's the way we view God's mercy. So here we go. Would that you, Jerusalem, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Peace with you. I'm coming to bring peace and peace for the world. That's your calling. But now they are hidden from your eyes. What does that mean? You've, you've heard, if you've been walking through the series, Jesus often says, do you have eyes but don't see? Do you have ears but don't hear? I mean, honestly, I have been right with you and you've missed me. 
This is what they're saying. It's not, God is not intentionally hiding, but they're choosing to not recognize. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, Jerusalem, and hem you in on every side. 70 AD is when that happened. Jesus knows it's coming. Jesus knows that judgment is coming because they have wandered and they have falsely believed that they can go and do anything they want and God's going to be good with that. Verse 44, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. It's going to be a horrible day, a very destructive day. The capital city, including the temple, will be turned into rubble. And it really did. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. God has been sending prophets and God has been sending even his own son. And you're about to turn on me. Jesus knows it's coming. He's been telling. And we've been walking this through since Mark chapter 8, chapter after chapter. Let me tell you guys what's going to happen to me. They're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to me. They're going to kill me after they arrest me, mock me, spit on me, flog me. Because they have decided that I must not be the Messiah that came because I'm not the Messiah that they wanted. And so again, this is all going on. So again, how do we connect this? There's a physical fig tree that is waving leaves, come and have figs, and Jesus pronounced judgment on them, on it. But really, it's about the figurative fig tree where Jesus is saying, you're waving your leaves, oh Pharisees, come to the temple and let us represent a God of grace and mercy to you. But then when they come, Because if there's leaves, then there's fruit, there's figs, and they're ripped off. There's nothing but leaves. There's no no quality representation of God and his love and his plan for them. That's what Jesus says, uh, I'm not going to overlook. There will be judgment. Let's take a look at Mark chapter 11, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem... And this is now what Jesus is going to do to the figurative fig tree. He's going to bring uh, circumstantial judgment after he just gave prophetic judgment of when in 70 AD, because what I'm about to do is not going to stop you. You're going to continue to move in a wayward way. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow this to continue. Anyone to carry anything through the temple, don't go to their tables. Stop what you're doing. Well, what's going on here? This is what he saw the day before that broke his heart in the evening And then he says, guys, it's late. Let's go back to Bethany. He knew he was going to come the next day and start turning over tables and stop this religious robbery is what he's going to call it. These guys are a den of robbers. They're ripping people off. So what's going on here? So again, this dates way back to the the, the Passover, uh, this this sacrificial uh, system 
that you need to have a substitute for your sin, uh, and then God will pass over judgment upon you. And uh, I spent too much time in the first service going after uh, Moses and the freedom that God gave to the people of Israel from Egypt because of the first Passover, where God, uh, after a bunch of plagues that, that showed the, the, the weakness of the Egyptian gods, every plague that God did was basically a, a, uh, a statement against one of their Egyptian gods. And then the last one, the angel of death, of judgment, is going to come over the land and bring judgment inside the home of the land. Jew and Gentile, by the way, Egyptian and Jewish. If it were not for those who say, you know what, I want to be passed over from this judgment, so I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to go ahead and take the blood of an innocent lamb, and I'm going to put blood over the the, the threshold of, of, of the doorpost. And then when the judgment comes, it will pass over me because of the blood that I'm going to paint and be over the sin in the house. What a beautiful story. And again, there's no coincidence that Jesus came in on Palm Sunday at the beginning of Passover. Jesus dies on a Friday, literally during the Passover where more lambs were being slaughtered. And Jesus says, guys, all that has been leading up to me. So here's what happened is, so there's been this sacrificial system meant for people to know that God loves them, that God wants you to approach him, but sin separates you from him. So God still wants you and he's made a way for a sacrificial substitute to go ahead and bridge the gap between him and us. And so these sacrifices, they were important, but they were not enough. So all these sacrifices because, uh, and we've talked about this. Matter of fact, I'm bringing back a Jewish rabbi. Some of you guys know Barney. He's going to be here in a couple of weeks to kind of uh, help uh, put some of these things together. And uh, so uh, what they said was, and you study the passages, uh, unblemished animals. The idea there is do the best you can to bring as good of a sacrifice as you can, but nothing that we bring is ever going to be good enough. It won't be perfect unless the perfect son of God comes, and that would be Jesus. So this whole system was in place so that people could be recognizing that God is for them, but sin separates them from this God who is for them. And God put together this substitution strategy to bridge the gap. And so what these religious people then were doing is that they say, hey, we can make money off of this. So here's the deal. We know they got to come because they know what God wants them to do to remind them of their sin and their need for forgiveness. So here's what we're going to do. Whether or not they bring their own animal or we're going to sell them our animals, we're going to go ahead and make sure we make a profit from this. And so if you bring your own animals, we're going to try to convince you that your animal's not good enough. So you need to go ahead and get a better animal and we have one to sell you. But most people, when they traveled for miles and miles and miles, they couldn't bring their own animals. It's too, too long of a journey. And so what they did was they sold some lambs or pigeons in the temple courts, the outer courts. And there's nothing wrong with that. Literally making available so they can go ahead and offer a sacrifice to, to symbolically say, my sin can be placed on a substitute and blood can be shed because... Uh, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And so again, uh, there's nothing wrong with letting that unfold. What was wrong is, hey, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and, and charge them 
for these animals. And if they want to pay for a lamb, great. If they can't afford that, we'll sell them a pigeon. That'd be great. And so then they wait in line and say, I guess I'll take, I'll take, uh, I'll take that lamb. And then you pull out your, your, your drachma or your denarii or, or some currency. And what they did is that they came up with their own temple currency. So, well, no, you can't use your currency. You've got to use temple money. Well, I don't have any. Well, go to that table and they'll exchange your money for temple money. So you go over to that table, you throw out your drachma, and the exchange rate was ludicrous, was robbery. But what are you going to do? So they take your money and they give you a little bit of temple tax, temple money, and then you go back and buy this. So by the time you do what you truly want to do, to approach a God that's holy and you're not, to remind it of your sin, the opportunity for a substitute to care for your sin problem, you're walking away and you're feeling ripped off. So Jesus says the very people that should represent God's mercy and grace and love are the very people taking advantage of this system and ripping people off. So Jesus turns over the tables of people selling and exchanging money. And he says, you guys are misrepresenting. There's no figs here. There's just leaves here. And people are leaving with a wrong view of God's character. And so he does this. So he, uh, he would not allow this to, to, to continue. Take a look at verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, and he quotes a couple Old Testament prophecy or, or Old Testament passages. Is it not written, my house, this temple, shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So people can be drawn and know God's love and God's mercy and an opportunity for sin to be dealt with for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. A couple things here. One is, notice, as he was teaching them. So this is why Jesus waited the night before. You know, again, uh, Sunday night, he goes in and he sees what's going on and he knows it's late and he's not about to go ahead and turn over all these tables and just leave because that's going to raise a lot of questions. What's wrong? Why are you upset? What are they doing that is misrepresenting your heavenly father. I mean, honestly, so he knows that he doesn't have time to do that. So then he comes back the next day. Some of you might read this and thinking he turned over the tables and then he just left. He didn't leave. This is the morning. And then he, he maybe grabs a, a, a chair and he, and he sits on it and he teaches for the rest of the day. He doesn't just do this and leave them, but he does it, confronts the religious establishment and teaches for hours. Matter of fact, in verse 19, we're going to see at the end of the day and evening, finally says, hey, it's getting late. Let's go ahead and go back to Bethany. Something else here too, you have made it a den of robbers. Question, den of robbers, what is that? You know, again, you have robbers who rob, right? You might want to write that down. That's pretty good. Robbers rob, and then they go back to where they feel safe to their den of robbers. I think Jesus is implying something here. You guys think you're safe ripping people off because of your Jewish circumcision, your, your religious titles, and the fact that you're in this capital, and the fact that you're in this temple, the fact that you think you are untouchable and you're wrong. You feel like you're, you're safe in this den and judgment is about to come. So these are the guys waving leaves figuratively. Come and 
have figs. Come, and we will represent to you the character of God. But there's only leaves. There's no figs. Matter of fact, there's anti-figs. Their example is opposed to God's character, misrepresenting God's character, as sadly some people do today, purposefully. So, um, so let's get back now. Look at verse 18. The chief priests knew exactly who Jesus was displeased with. Jesus was not displeased with people who wanted to get closer to God and kind of go through this sacrificial system. But Jesus was very displeased about the religious establishment that was taking advantage of these people, confusing these people. Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. We got to get rid of this guy. It's either him or us. The people can't follow both of us because we are opposed to one another I'm sure that's what Jesus was teaching all day long. And, uh, but they feared, the, they feared him because they feared the crowd because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They were, they were moving towards Jesus. And Jesus was speaking with, with some authority and with some passion. And when evening came, notice that he was there for all day long. Then Jesus and the disciples, they went out of the city and they go back to Bethany. And we're going to pick up that uh, in, 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 just, in just a little bit. So uh, let's just jump into it now. Look at verse, Mark 11, verse 20. So that was a full day. So now let's take a look at Tuesday morning, okay? And so Tuesday morning, Mark 11, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they're going back into it for some more teaching. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, right? So they're going back in, and Jesus is focused and ready to go in and do some more teaching and more confronting of the religious establishment. We're going to see a lot more of that next Sunday, by the way, because things are coming to a head. And then Peter looks over at the poor fig tree that the day before Jesus pronounced a judgment on. And the very fig tree that Jesus says, no figs will ever grow from you again because you were all leaf and no fig. Uh, you, you created a perception that there is going to be a fig. There, there's going to be what will be helpful, but there was not. So again, it's the fact was, it wasn't the fact that the fig tree didn't have figs. The fact was, it, it said, it proclaimed, come and I will give you a fig. And all leaf, no fig, judgment comes. So now take a look at what Peter said in verse 21. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, as if Jesus was going to be surprised. It actually worked. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. Well, this is where in the gospel of Mark, things can go south in helpful interpretation because the next few verses, it's as if Jesus teaches out of context. He just changes the subject from figs to faith and forgiveness. But he's not. That's why I spent so much time unpacking the context. Because if you miss the context, you're going to miss what he says. So Jesus looked. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. Again, it never was about that fig tree, it was about the other fig tree that confrontation and coming judgment is going to be upon. And Jesus knows, not only I'm going to confront and bring judgment now, a few years from then, 
40 years from then, uh, it's going to go ahead and uh, turn into a parking lot and, and, and serious judgment is going to come. This is the context of Mark 11, verse 22. In Mark 11, 22, 23, and 24 has been so misused and so misunderstood, maybe even by some of you, because some of you might feel, listening online or sitting here or outside, that God hasn't answered some of your prayers because your lack of belief in what you say. Let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Notice he's talking about figs. Peter's saying, hey, it really worked. The fig tree is all withered. Now notice this, verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Where did that come from? Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have already received it and it will be yours. What is up with that? Did Jesus say that? Yes, he said that. But he said that after three and a half years of teaching and training including a lot of truths about prayer to these disciples. And he's also saying this, knowing what just happened and knowing what's going to happen that's going to take the entire Jewish nation by surprise. Why am I making such a big deal about this? Because again, some of you have had your prayers unanswered about healing, about injustice, about provision. And you think, based on a passage like this, you're the problem. I guess I just didn't believe enough. It's interesting that right after this interesting little teaching time that seems to say, name it and claim it. I'm going to want it. And God says, if I just name it, request it, and claim it as reality, it will be real for me. And so if it doesn't happen, I guess I didn't claim it enough. I didn't believe in it enough. That's just not true. There's nowhere else in Scripture that says it's all about your amount of claiming, believing, wanting, and making it happen. Matter of fact, right after this, Jesus is going to be in a garden in Gethsemane, and he doesn't practice this name it and claim it prayer uh, strategy. You know, again, Jesus doesn't want to go to the cross. He asks over and over and over to his father, can this cup be passed from me? I'd rather not do this. Is there any other way for this sin problem to be reconciled? You know what Jesus could have said? You know what? I'm going to name something. I'm going to claim something. I'm going to believe something. Heavenly Father, I claim that I don't have to go to the cross. And I believe that I don't need to do that and that the sin problem can still be solved. So 
Because whatever I say, whatever I claim, whatever I fully believe, I can make into reality. He doesn't say that. And nor should you pray that way. It's a very dangerous and uh, inaccurate uh, understanding. Matter of fact, Jesus, in just a few days, he makes his request, doesn't demand it, but he finishes his prayer the way we ought to finish all of our prayers. Make your requests. Pour your heart out. What you believe you would like for God to do. Nothing wrong with that. But then, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That is really different than I'm going to go ahead and name it, claim it, believe it, and then expect it. Matter of fact, last summer, I did a whole seven-week summer series on the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul related to the privilege of prayer. And uh, so again, contextually, Jesus did say something that seemed a little bit exaggerative, but he said it to some people who have been listening to his teaching training about praying for over three years. And so what is he really trying to get at? Before I give that to you, let me give you a a more balanced view of prayer according to what is in Scripture, including what Jesus taught. Take a look at John 15, verse 7. This is what Jesus said. In a different time where there is more focus on teaching, if you abide in me, this is part of this this, this, this discourse that, that starts from John 13 all the way through to 17. And a lot of teaching here. Uh, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask what you wish and it will be done for you. It doesn't say whatever you say it, just claim it and believe it and you're going to have it. It says, listen, if you abide in me, stay close to me and my words abide in you. What does that mean? Know me, know my words, walk with me, listen to me and let that relationship fuel what you ask of me. And then ask in that context what you wish and it will be done. And then John, the closest disciple of the 12, uh, who has been with Jesus, who has been hearing Jesus teach about all kinds of things, including praying. This is what he says in one of his last letters. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's a little different than if you ask anything and just believe it. That's why we always must say, God, this is what I believe is on your heart. This is what I believe would bring glory to you in this broken world. And I'm going to request it boldly. But nevertheless, I want your will most. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So again, uh, let's get back to this a little bit. Let me give you back to Mark chapter 11, because this is, again, the context of these uh, statements here. And notice what it says here in verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. He knows that judgment's coming soon and then complete uh, in the years to come. He also knows that even the disciples... And the Jewish nation, just like you and I, we attach our confidence in God to our circumstances more than we realize. This is important. Hold on to this thought. Because literally, when when the Jewish nation had their capital and temple crumble, their faith withered. 
Because how can I be close to God if he would allow this capital and this temple to basically be demolished by our enemies? And so then they're, they're, they're too committed to having confident, including a, an effective prayer life, uh, when they're too attached to a certain uh, setting. Literally, Jesus is saying, guys, whatever capital, whatever temple is, 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 is no longer, you keep praying, you keep trusting, you keep following. Today, what are you attaching your faith to other than Jesus? Is it, you know, I'm going to keep believing in God until my marriage fails, until he or she dies, until my business, this or this or that. We attach credibility of God's character and our prayers to something less than a relationship with Jesus. And that's what's going on here. Notice this, what it says here. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, what mountain? Not just any mountain. Jesus is saying, what? This mountain is the Jerusalem mountain. Jerusalem is on a hill. And he says, listen, uh, if this city, if this capital, including this temple, was taken up and, and, and thrown over to the Dead Sea, how will you pray then? How will you walk with me then? And he's grooming them, thinking, guys, pretty soon they're going to take me, kill me, mock me. Then how close do you think I'm going to be to you then? That's the context of this. So don't take these verses out of context and just name it and claim it. Be saying, guys, of course I'm not saying name it and claim it, but stay confident in me. Even when circumstances are going to cause you to wonder if you're on the winning team. Interesting, right after this, look at verse 25. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. So he goes from figs to faith to forgive. Basically, he's going back to summarize some teaching he's been sharing for over three years. Guys, keep believing me, even when you're going to see some tough stuff, even when you're going to experience some loss, even when your capital and temple is going to turn to rubble, I'm still in charge. And yes, I'm not going to overlook sin. I'm going to allow other things to be taken, but I'm never going to abandon you. My kingdom will continue to triumph. So then he goes after forgiveness. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, that certainly things seems out of context, but it's not. Guys, don't get distracted on what comes and goes circumstantially in your life. Keep praying. Keep following. And keep forgiving. Don't let bitterness sit and grow in your heart. Because then the spiritual vitality that is still available is going to go ahead and be weakened in your life. So that's enough for this morning related to this passage. A little bit of context. But here's what I want to do for the next little bit. I'm going to take it out of first century. And I'm going to put it into you and your future, and me and my future. One of the themes in this passage is coming judgment. And they had some misconceptions about what judgment would be like. They thought things are going to be great for them because they're Jewish, and they're in the capital, they're in the temple, and they're untouchable. And they would be wrong. Some of you, you're a bit too comfortable when it comes to an understanding of coming judgment. 
let me unpack that in just a little bit. So again, we looked at them. I kind of want us to go ahead and take the binoculars away, hold up a mirror and say, well, what does the Bible say about coming judgment for me? And a couple of these thoughts maybe might surprise you. So here we go. On your outline, I'd encourage you to write a little bit of this down because we take the scriptures of then and we apply the truths to now. So here we go. Future judgment. Here's the first truth, whether you believe it or not. Our judge and defense, for some, will be Jesus. Now I combine two thoughts there. The first is true for all of us. Your judge at the end will be Jesus. Whether or not he's your defense, that's up to you. But first I want to focus on this judge. I think some people are living their life and they're thinking, you know what? I think I'll choose my own judge. Better yet, I think I'll be my own judge. Or I'm going to let that person that I really like and listen to their podcast, I'm going to go ahead and let that person and what he or she says is true be my judge. Because I love you, because I want to help you, I need to tell you, you don't get to choose who's going to judge your life at the end of your life. The Bible says in John chapter 5, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Or in Philippians 2, that Jesus will have every knee bow, every tongue confess, whether or not they believed it, or they say, you know what? We chose not to, but now I see it, that Jesus is Lord. Our judge will be Jesus. For me, that's not going to be a problem. Here's why. I followed him, not perfectly, but when Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You want to get to the Father? Get through me. You want forgiveness? I can give it to you. I'm going to go ahead and be the perfect lamb. I will be your substitute. And it's going to be what you can never earn. It's a gift. You just need to receive it. By grace through faith, let me help you have a new birth. I've done that. February 29th, 1980. I bowed the knee in a college dormitory and I moved from churchianity to Christianity. I've taken Jesus at his word. So when I hear that Jesus is going to be my judge, that's good news for me. If you or others say, you know what? I don't need Jesus. I'm good without Jesus. Whoever God is, I'm going to represent myself. I'm going to go away from what Jesus would say. It's not going to be as good for you. And you don't get to choose that. Our judge will be Jesus. But here's another verse. Our judge will be Jesus and defense. Now that's talking about me and the other Christ followers here and wherever you are. This is a great passage. This is also from John. 1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2. He says, I'm writing to this new generation. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And what he's saying right before this, guys, work at, you'll never be sinless, but you can sin less by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. But you're still going to fall. And so always remember what Jesus made possible. And that's this forgiveness. That's the context for this, okay? So this is chapter two. So 
um, we're jumping in. But notice this. But remember, if anyone does sin, and that would be all of us, because right before that it says, if you don't think you sin, you're deceiving yourself. If anyone does sin, you have an advocate with the Father. That's the term, advocate. What that means, that's like a defense attorney. So literally, that's good news. The judge is Jesus, and he's also my defense attorney. He's going to defend me. And so literally, yeah, you're pronounced guilty. But let me go ahead and I've already paid your ticket. I've already paid your price. I've already invited you in. I've already forgiven you, given you new birth. And so I'm going to go ahead and and present you to my father as whiter than snow. Man, that's good stuff. So again, uh, that's, that's the first truth related to judgment. Then when it comes to salvation, because all of Jesus, none of me, I'm in. I go on his coattails by grace through faith. Most of you, Christ follower, even maybe non-Christ follower, you've heard something like that. I invite you not just to hear it, but receive it. Here's what you might not have heard and or (coughs) recognized. Christ followers will be spared from separation from God. That is true. Uh, That's Romans 8 verse 1. No condemnation, no separation. So all Christ followers, because Jesus' forgiveness and giving you adoption papers, there's no separation between you and your heavenly Father forever. Man, that's good news. But also, the Bible says, even though you will be spared from separation from God, you will not be spared from all sadness from certain choices. That might be new for you. Some of you might have heard early on in churchy circles, you know what? God loves me. God knows I'm a sinner saved by grace. And when I see him and he sees me, he's going to smile and he will. It's going to be gracious. It's going to be graciously beautiful. He can't wait to embrace you after walking through and enduring this brokenness. But here's the deal. In this judgment... He's not going to just pass out smiley stickers and participation trophies. There's going to be rewards at the final judgment. And hear me, there's going to be regret. If we have chosen to put our kingdoms before his kingdom, you're always going to be saved by grace through faith. But there will be some accountability and some recognition that will lead to regret of your missed opportunities to live more fully for him. How does that work? Well, again, let's take a look at some of God's word. So uh, take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 11 through 15. In your small groups this week, if you're doing the sermon-based discussion guide, you're going to take a look at this passage and even a little bit longer in context. But let me just start in verse 11. You're going to start this week, if you are in one of our groups, in verse 1 of this passage. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, period. You are only saved when your sin is resolved and Jesus is the only one that can take care of that. And uh, so no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation, lives in light of that with gold, 
silver, precious stones. These are object lessons. If you're going to live with purity, with, 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 with obedient purpose to your life, or you choose to resemble wood, hay, and straw, which doesn't last, which won't pass the test. This is where he's going. Each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D, that's judgment day, yours and mine will disclose it. There will be a final audit for you and I. And then what we have invested in, what we've done with our investments, our resources, our choices will be seen by him and by you because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Look at verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation of Christ, salvation is secure. This is about stewardship. This is about management of the resources and choices that God's given you. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Yes, there will be rewards. But there will also be Awareness of regret and acknowledgement of missed opportunity. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Another pastor has shared an illustration Recently, when he was teaching this, uh, some of the families where his church was, was going through a fire. And houses just got burned up. But their families made it out alive. They were very thankful that they made it out alive. But they were also missing what they were no longer able to have. That's partly true. Every illustration is a little bit weak when it comes to that. But there will be people, according to Scripture, that you know you're going to make it through because it's all about Jesus and you were saved by grace. But make no mistake, you and me, we're going to be met by a gracious Heavenly Father and a gracious Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And it will be a wonderful reunion. He cannot wait to welcome you home. But it's not all going to be just happy stickers and rewards. Some will have more rewards than others. And you're going to talk about that in your small groups as well this week if you'd like to. But some of you and I are going to have more regrets than others based on, you know what? Uh, Like the Jewish nation, I chose to go ahead and wander from my calling. I chose to go ahead and build something more for me than for him. I just need you to know because I love you and I have a fear of God in me. I don't want you to think that, you know what? I'm saved by grace. I'm a sinner saved by grace, which would be true. And you can live any way you want to. You can spend your money any way you want to. You can define your sexuality any way you want to. You can go ahead and and have any level of morality than you want to or professional integrity than you want to. And you're just going to have a smiley sticker when it comes to your judgment day. God will reveal his love to you. But you and I both are going to have some regret. I will. You will too. 
what I'm asking you to do is come before the Lord this week, graciously, humbly, and say, God, I really would like to have less regret. So how can I more live for you? What does that mean? I want you to look forward to that day as I do. It will be a day full of grace and mercy. And, uh, but hear me, there will be rewards and there will be a sense of loss and regret. We want to maximize the rewards and minimize the other. I'm going to give you just one last verse because, again, I know what the emails are going to be, and I've taught on this before. This verse tends to come up based on what other people have taught in the past. And so let me just give you this one interesting verse. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Some people believe, you know what, God? When I die, I've heard there's going to be two lines. The line I'm going to be on and another line. And this is the white throne judgment. This is the good stuff. This is the happy stickers and rewards. And this is the other stuff. I'm so glad I'm in this line. It's going to be nothing but smiles, nothing but rewards. Because of this passage. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. So we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Talking about Christians here. We must all appear before this judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. It's interesting, some of you churchy people, I'm going to nerd out just for a little bit. The Greek word for judgment seat is bema, B-E-M-A. And there's a lot of stuff that is wrong about this. And the bema seat of Christ And here's where they kind of go off. If you just read this, that kind of makes sense. Well, we're going to appear before the judgment seat. We're going to be measured. First salvation, then stewardship. Kind of makes sense. But here's where some people go off a little bit. So this Bema seat in the first century context, there was a literal Bema seat in the ancient Greek Olympics. And so... uh, Some people say, well, I know what Paul is getting at. It's like back in those days in the Grecian Olympics, there was a bema seat, judgment seat, and the judges that would pass out the ribbons and the trophies would sit on the seat. Then after all the race was done, then they would line up and they would get up from their bema seat and only pass out happiness, only pass out stickers and rewards for those who finished the race. So therefore, I can live any way I want to. And then when Jesus stands and as my judge, it's only going to be rewards. There will not be an acknowledgement of what could have been in a broken world as a missionary minister for him. So again, here's the problem with that. This is not the only place where Bema seat is. It's inaccurate, it's inaccurate to say, well, let's focus on the Grecian Olympics and not focus on God's word. Last verse, and then I promise I'm going to be done. Take a look at John chapter 19. And we're just going to push pause. We're not going to be done. Come back next week. Let's keep unpacking this together. But notice this. It's interesting. This is where we're going to be in, a, in a, about a month when Jesus is about to be crucified. This is Pontius Pilate. Last verse, I promise. John 19, 13 through 16. When Pilate heard these words, this is Jesus' court trial of which Pontius Pilate is about to convict him. 
When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. It's the same judgment seat, same Greek word. Pontius Pilate had a Bema seat too. But at his Bema seat, it wasn't just happy stickers. It wasn't just rewards. He literally is pronouncing Jesus's death. Uh, place called Stone Pavement. They cried out, away with him, away with him. And from this seat, uh, he was turned over to be crucified. Listen to me. At the seat of Jesus' judgment, uh, he was crucified for you. So you can quit nailing yourself to the cross. He did that for you. But your choices, your actions and attitudes and sacrifices or lack thereof matter this side of heaven about stewardship. And let's just end with this. Your choice of what you do with Jesus related to your salvation matters. Mark is drawing this gospel to a conclusion. It says, now what will you do? Is he God the Son? Is he the Son of God or not? Bow the knee or back away. And what you decide matters. You bow your head, let's pray. Father, this is a challenging book and this is a challenging message. I thank you, God, that you're not a God of confusion. You are a God of clarity. And when we choose to have eyes to see and ears to hear, you reveal yourself to us. Father, may we humbly come before you as sinners saved by grace. But God, may we take seriously this reminder that our choices matter. What we do with our time and talent and treasure matters. And Father, may we look forward to seeing your gracious face when we breathe our last. And may we more live in light of that, seeking first your kingdom and not our own. You are worth that. In Jesus' name, amen. And it's hard to stop right there because things are heating up and I'm sure you have some questions and thoughts. Go to God this week. Reread this passage. Don't read it defensively. I know what I wanted to say. Read it humbly and let God speak to you. This is an opportunity right now not to think about the Padres or car keys or whatever. Uh, this is an opportunity to approach the throne of grace with a humble heart and let Chachi lead you there. I'll be right back. Go, I see now. I'm
I love how that song ends in again and again and again. That's kind of you and me. There are days like maybe right now you want to be all in. And God, I want to live more obediently for you. And then there's Monday. And then there's these struggles this week. We are better together. And God is a gracious heavenly father for you. But let's live in light of the fact that, yes, God wants to have a sit down with you related to salvation and stewardship. And let's live in light of both. Um, speaking of having fun together as a church family, not the best transition here. There's a lot of things we could talk about, a lot of classes, a lot of groups, a lot of opportunities. But there's an event that I'm asking every single one of you to help make it a success. Not this Friday, but a week from this Friday, we're inviting hundreds of kids from our church and surrounding communities to have a fun night on Friday the 28th. Can we show that slide here? This is what it's called, trunk or treat, right? We want to have a good evening where kids can have a lot of fun and have a safe place to enjoy and get lots of candy and paint lots of pumpkins. So here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to every single one of you, we need a pumpkin. If everyone just kind of goes to Ralph's or goes to Vaughn's and brings one pumpkin in the next week, or you can drop it by because a lot of kids are going to want to go ahead and decorate and carve and, and paint, and we're going to do it with them. And uh, we want to bring that in. So please do that. And also, we need your trunk. And I've got to have an object lesson for you. I've done this every year now for a lot of fun. I freak out kids, not really. But this is the time for me to go back to the 60s. And so what I've done is every year I go to Amazon and I add to my wardrobe. And so this is the shirt that I'll be wearing uh, on this Friday because it's okay to be silly every now and then for the next generation. And so what I'm going to do is Rhonda and I, we're going to go ahead and drive in with our car. We're going to go ahead and I've already purchased it. And I grumbled when I did it because it was way too expensive because they know I'm coming, right? And, uh, but I bought a bag of candy. So we're going to drive in. And uh, we're going to go ahead and open this up, and we're going to pass out some candy from our trunk and give our kids a treat. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to have extra candy. Bring one bag for you, large or small, whatever, and we'll keep refilling it for you because this is sponsored by our Kids Point Ministry. We need everyone to bring a pumpkin. You want to bring some candy? That's great. But here's what we do. We need your trunks. We need at least 50 cars to come in from 7 to 8.30. We're going to drive down in our parking garage. We're going to be all lined up, and we're going to go ahead and wear silly stuff. The reason why I'm saying this now is you can go to Amazon.com, and you can go ahead and Google silly costume for trunk or treat, and then you have a week to go ahead and order something like this. And uh, if you don't want to do this, just wear a Padre shirt and come as a fan, and you'll be fine. So I bought this wig, I got some glasses, and I can't wait to scare, I'm not going to scare kids, I'm going to love kids, and I'm going to go ahead and go ahead and pass out some candy and have a ball. I'd encourage you, you found a church that wants to make a difference for the next generation. We want them to know the scriptures. We want them to know the love of God. We want them, though, also to know that this place is a place of laughter and fun. And so again, help us make that possible. Go ahead and bring 
your trunk and bring your candy and bring your pumpkins and let's make this happen. We need to know that though. I'm looking for 50 cars. I think we have maybe 15 so far. I know some of you want to sign up. Uh, the reason why we're doing it on Friday night, stay home, have fun on Halloween if you want to do that, if that's your thing. But uh, Friday night, just come. One last thing about that. Some of you, you have young kids. You can come and do this trunk or treat. You can bring your car, but you're going to want to be chasing around your kids to the other trunks. I'm coming after you if you don't have kids in your home, young or old. So you come and be silly with Rhonda and I. You come and bring your car and a little bit of candy. And let's go ahead and have some fun as a bunch of people that literally want to give people some light and fun of that. Good to go. So I'd encourage you to do that. We need to know who you are. Email us, bring your pumpkins, bring your candy, and let's do it together. Okay. So I'm going to bring it over to uh, Kurt. He's going to wrap us up. Try to top that, Kurt. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> see if the microphone works this time. Yeah, I think it does. You're finally coming around with the hair. The next thing will be a ponytail next. <laughs> hey, good morning, everybody. Good afternoon, actually, at this point. I'm Kurt, one of our men's ministry members, and uh, like to, there we go, next Saturday we have a pancake, we're actually having pancakes and sausages, big change over eggs and bacon, and it'll be on the back porch, 7 a.m., we'll have some fruit and juice and other things that are necessary, and uh, um, if you've never been to one before, uh, the volunteers show up pretty early, 5, 5.30 a.m., we prep, we cook, we set the tables out. Then we all dish up together. We'll have a prayer, we'll have worship music playing, and we'll have a table topic. Next, we'll have a testimony, and we have a special guest speaker next Saturday, our own Pastor Rick Thompson. Really looking forward to that. We can still use some volunteers for setup and cooking. There's a couple email addresses up there in the upper right-hand corner, or see myself. There's Pastor Rick over there afterwards, and we'll definitely get you signed up to help us. With Pastor Rick speaking, with the pancakes and so forth, I really encourage you come yourselves, men, but also bring a friend, bring a neighbor. Uh, these breakfasts, if you've been to them, they really are fellowship and encouragement. As you see, I found this, this special translation, the New English Bible of Hosea 7-8 up there on the screen, where God tells Hosea that the tribe Ephraim is spending too much time mixing with the nations, and it makes it like a pancake not turned over. We all know how unturned pancakes don't taste very well. In Hosea, God tells him uh, to marry an unfaithful woman. Married a woman by the name of Gomer. Sorry, Pastor Bob, one biblical name didn't catch on, evidently. But, but just as this tribe was being unfaithful to God through idolatry and sins, they were, they were the unturned pancake. The, the tribe was the unturned pancake. They were being burned on one side by the world, and they had neglect of their faithfulness to God on the other side. So my message is pretty simple. We spend all week being burned on that other side, all week in, in the world. This is an opportunity for us to have a spiritual breakfast together next Saturday, and we'll work on the other side together. See everybody next Saturday. We good? Peace out. Peace out. <laughs> Blessings. <laughs>